This is Tell Your Story, Alaska. We talk aviation, history, theology, but most of all, the raw stories of Alaskans and the gospel. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Tell Your Story, Alaska. Today I am sitting with Kurt and Lynette Bedingfield. I don't know how long I've known you, but we mainly got to know each other the most flying together last year, flying mm-hmm. some moose hunters out out in the Yukon Delta area. And so I really enjoyed flying with you, and I actually learned a lot from you about cruise settings. We <laughs> talked a lot about that, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, today, Kurt and Lynette agreed to sit down and tell their story, and they have lived most, most of their life in Alaska. And now your son Isaac and I have become really good friends, and Mm -hmm. he and I fly together a lot. And so uh, we're going to hear your story today. So let's start with your beginnings. Where were each of you born, and what was growing up like for each of you? Well, I'll start it. I was born in Red Lodge, Montana, and uh, my father was a preacher and had always been a preacher. And uh, I was there until I was 10, and we moved to Juneau, and from Juneau to Haines, and Haines to Fairbanks, and Fairbanks to Anchor Point, <laughs> at which time I remember, was 16 years old. Do you remember all these moves I as do. a kid? Mm-hmm. Okay. I do. And, uh, but Anchor Point is where I met my wife, Lynette. Okay. She was 14, and we met at church. Oh. So it's your turn. (laughs) Well, my father wanted to come to Alaska to be a missionary. Oh, wow. And so we came up in 1961. Hmm. And you were one? I was six months old. Six months old. We had a homestead in Willow. And then I grew up in Anchor Point, or Chugiak, and then Anchor Point. Hmm. And met Kurt Were your there. parents missionaries out there then? My father, they ended up not being missionaries in Alaska until many years later. Okay. He actually just did prison ministries okay. um, for many, many years with the youth. He and my mom both did. But it didn't work out to do what he wanted, but he preached. He, okay. We had our own home church. and mm-hmm. and So growing up in Alaska was a wonderful experience. And, um would you say, like, growing up in Alaska was a, like, could you describe it as a rugged experience? Uh, with my father, yes. We, he, <clears throat> we built our own place up on the mountain in Chugiak all by ourselves. No other neighbors around for many years. Wow. Um, and then when we moved to Anchor Point, he built an art studio. My parents were both artists. Oh. And it was just wonderful. Starting out in Anchor Point was my favorite memories because there were no telephones television we used cbs visitors came by snow machine in the winter Hmm. 10 o'clock to our house every day for their first round of coffee as they so it was just a fun time to grow up before change came Hmm. and um but my thing was i had a christian father who embarrassed me oh um i wanted to be the cool kid in school but when you have a preacher for a father, people tend to assume you aren't cool. <laughs> so I worked really, really hard to be cool and got in a lot of trouble. And uh, <laughs> But we moved to Anchor Point, and that was where I first met Christian teenagers that mm. were cool. And it changed my life. 
How did it change your life? They were cool kids. They were somebody I could respect and admire, and they weren't ashamed of being Christians, Hmm. and I'd never seen that before. Hmm. And it took me a while. I was a slow learner, and I didn't want to go to church. I was very rebellious, and I figured out at 13, if I taught Sunday school, I didn't have to sit in there. (laughs) <laughs> and I could get away from them, but I love children. <laughs> mm. And I also wanted the adults who didn't trust me to think I was something. So I worked really hard to be the best teacher <laughs> those kids had ever had. That opened the door to God coming into my heart mm. all by myself, trying to look like I was. <laughs> but it probably wasn't the way your parents intended it. No, no. And so I, I had to start reading the Bible in order to teach those kids something. Mm. And... I, my life started turning at that point. Oh, interesting. So, you know, I just, I, at 18, um, it was a complete change. Hmm. I ripped posters off the wall and threw books away and music away and found a man who was going to Portland and said, go to a Bible bookstore and give me anything you want. Here's some money. I just, I'm changing. So that was my instant change. I assumed when I became a mother that I would have children that would at 18, turn and be complete, perfect Christians, and somehow that didn't quite follow, but (laughs) they all are now, but it was pretty slow. Hmm. But at 14, I met Kurt Bedingfield, and we were in Bible class, youth group, and he came in, and I had just broken up from my boyfriend that I was devastated about, and he kept looking at me, and I kept ignoring him. (laughs) But... It, it changed quickly, and, yes. and so that was at 14. So from at, at 18, I went to college mm-hmm. looking for someone who I thought was maybe a better Christian. Better than Kurt? <laughs> I thought, you know, oh yeah, I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know that he's really marriage material. I love him. We have fun, but I don't think he's who I want to marry. So I went to Christian college, and I got engaged, and... Wow. He, he had gone to Adeline Christian in Texas, and he came to see me because he got out before I did and said, would you ever consider marrying somebody well, who's still in college? And I said, nope. Hmm. Nope. The people who are married here, I don't like to see the men sitting at tables with all the girls surrounding while the wife is at home. Nope. Ah. Never going to do that. But he asked me again um, when I got home. And, and four days later, she said yes. I still wasn't positive. I loved him so much, but I was not positive he was who I should marry. And it took four days to make that decision. It took me a while to say, I just love him. I don't love anybody else. Why would I even consider (laughs) waiting? But found out he was the most amazing Christian man. Yes. We have had a wonderful, wonderful, growing spiritual life. We've grown together. Mm. And everything we've done, we've done together. And... Anytime he wanted to do something, I couldn't wait to go. Wow. And we did things differently when our kids were little. Instead of me saying, oh, they're in school, we can't move them, mm. I said, oh, we don't want them to get too settled. And so I'd tell the boys, I'd say, maybe you're going to find your forever friend at the next school, and they'll just be your best friends for life. <laughs> so I, the boys were always excited to move. We moved every few years, mm. and we never did find you know, just that perfect world, mm. but we loved every place we lived. And then when we, they went to college and I had told my kids I didn't want to be that hovering mother and I'd say, you know, mm-hmm. go, 
you don't have to call me. You don't have to bother me. I know you love me no matter where you're at, but just go enjoy life. Don't worry about us. <clears throat> he calls all the time. And he'd go, guess who I ran into? Guess who I just met? The people that he had met throughout all of the state of Alaska, he kept bumping into. And to this day, oh, wow. the kids will still bump into someone they went to school with somewhere. Wow. So they, they were. Every place that we went, there's people that have been in their lives, important in their lives, to to reconnect. It's like there was a conductor conducting the whole thing. It was amazing. And the notes came in mm-hmm. at the right time. And yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Kurt, could you talk a bit about, you, you mentioned that your dad was a preacher. What was um, your relationship with your dad and faith and that sort of thing growing up for you? Yeah, kind of interesting. So uh, I was an outdoors person, mm-hmm. but my mother was the one that taught me how to hunt and fish. Oh, interesting. My dad had nothing to do with that. He was busy doing church stuff. Um, which later caused problems, marriage problems for him. Hmm. Um, but I never, um, I, my faith was never um, at question. Hmm. Um, my mother was uh, quite a woman. She. Uh, probably knew the Bible better than anyone. Wow. So uh, what I knew about God and how I felt about God and how I approached God came much from my mother. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Was your dad pretty busy with his activities then? He and was. a little bit less around? And so, uh, you know, I never went hunting or fishing or camping with him. Wow. It was always with my mother. Okay. Because he would be busy doing church stuff. Now, is there a little bit of a sadness on your part because of that? Uh, Yes and no. Uh, Later on, uh, I reconnected with my dad after we were married. Mm -hmm. And, uh, (laughs) but, uh, like Lynette said, uh, our parents kind of embarrassed us. (laughs) So... Yes. I don't know if that's a a common feeling, but that's the way it was. Later, my mother, um, I guess because she was so caught up uh, with losing dad, they got divorced. Mm. Um, She kind of put all her efforts into me. So when we got married, that really caused a strain. Oh, how so? Uh, Mom wanted to to all be her way and I yet I had a wife who yes. wanted it to be her way yes so yeah that caused uh, that caused quite a division mm-hmm. but even through all that uh, after we got married and probably when I was finally 22 21 22 when I started my own business hmm. I became a log home builder oh wow and uh, Jeremy was born, hmm. uh, our first son, who has Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, that just solidified my faith. I never was one who uh, questioned um, creation. Hmm. Uh, I went to Abilene, uh, Christian, and I was going to be a geologist. Oh, 
just like my grandfather. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, but going to a Christian college, um, it was taught totally different. So the Big Bang Theory, uh, which may or may not have happened that way, but certainly they put it in a light where that's how God did it or um, could have done it. At this Christian college. At the Christian college. Okay. And so we would take lots of field trips in Texas and New Mexico, hmm. and you'd go to the top of the mountain and you would see uh, the fossil evidence. Hmm. And instead of saying, you know, this was once a great sea and it's been uplifted to the top, mm-hmm. they would say, this is just evidence of the flood. Oh, interesting. It was all covered at one time, hmm. and that's why this is here. And so the, the, the connection of the fossil evidence, geological evidence, that connection to the truthfulness of Scripture was a major role for you. It was. But I, I never really questioned it. Um, Probably because of my mother and her upbringing and teaching, you know, we live in this world, we see everything that God has created, Hmm. and you just finally believe that this couldn't have just happened. Yeah. You know, we didn't start from a scum pond and amoebas, (laughs) and uh, because it's created so intricately. Yeah. So... I I never did have to go through that. Okay. Uh, never struggled with that, but to have a real relationship with God, it wasn't until I had a relationship with my wife hmm. that I understood what He was talking about. Wow. Hmm. Uh, in so marriage became an illustration. Kind it did. Of, of your relationship uh, the, with the two God. shall become one. Yes. And that one flesh works together. It's amazing when you're that emotional connection. You experience the emotion of becoming one flesh with someone, and you're connecting that with your relationship with Christ. So it's not just fossils and evidence. Now it's relational. Now it's a relationship. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really good. Yeah. Hmm. So because of that relationship, we've been together 44 years. 43. Well, we're on 44 now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we pause and do the math real quick? <laughs> well, yeah. This we'll, year will be 44. So this take us we'll take us 44. back. You're, you're newlyweds, and you're starting this uh, log house build business. Log home and building. Are you, are you, yep. How did how did the, you get from, like, you're in Montana, where mm-hmm. you're at this Christian college. And you ended, how did you get up to Alaska? Why did you come here? Well, my father got a job in Juneau oh. as a preacher, mm. and... Uh, I guess I should regress just a little bit about the flying. Uh, I said I started at 15, but I got the bug at 8. Oh, wow. How did the bug come? In New Mexico, of oh. all places. Hmm. Uh, a little place called Hope, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a gentleman who went to church there who was a rancher who had a Super Cub. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was a 135-horse mm-hmm. Super Cub. But he mm-hmm. gave me a ride. Yeah. And I was hooked forever. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we moved to Alaska, and my dad was uh, doing it as a missionary. Oh. So he was, uh, he had had to go back uh, to Texas and get the sponsors and all that. Yeah. 
and came to Juneau, and we were there in Juneau for maybe two and a half years. Mm. And the church uh, individuals, I should say, in the church um, had different views about the working of the Holy Spirit and what part it played in our lives, which was different than my dad's. Mm. So we ended up uh, moving from Juneau to Haines, Mm -hmm. and uh, he drove truck there. So he he effectively left the ministry at that point? He left the ministry at that point. Do you think he was embittered by that experience? No, uh, certainly he was not. Okay. Uh, Because his relationship with God was very strong. Oh, okay. And, and he uh, was a gentle giant. He yes. was a wonderful yep. man. Oh, neat. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My father, even though I didn't have a lot to do with him because he didn't do the things I loved to do, which was being the outdoors. Yes. He was always good to me. Mm. He wasn't uh, a bad father. Yeah. Um, we just didn't get to know each other very well. Mm. But you said you did later. We did later, later after yeah. we got married. Mm-hmm. Um, then we we reconnected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but he never did go back to full time preaching mm. or full time ministry. Okay. Mm. But that moved us up to Fairbanks. Uh, his truck driving. Yeah. And uh, then from Fairbanks we ended up on Anchor Point. An Anchor Point, and yeah. that's where you met Lynette. That's where I met Lynette. And it took her four days to decide to. To marry me. Yes. 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 <laughs> Only because I doubted my She own. wasn't convinced <laughs> that I was the man for her because I was uh, a quiet, silent type. Mm. Well, I thought it was, yeah. and Lynette, and your side of the story was you had seen so many married men sitting around talking to these other ladies, and that tainted men a little bit. So you were hesitant. Well, just just to go back to college with him as a wife and sit in an apartment while he was in school. Oh, I see. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And it's not that any of these guys were cheating on their wives. I just didn't like the thought of girls were attracted to married men, I guess. I don't know. But they would sit and have lunch at the tables with these guys. And yes. I thought, no, my husband's not going to do that. I just won't be there. Yes. So that means we only went to college one year. <laughs> we, had, was done. we had to quit so we could get married. <laughs> So let's pick up from there. Um, tell me about your early, you started this business, you were like 22, you're married. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's start from there. Tell me about that business. Well, I became a log home builder and I poured my heart into it. And uh, I was published in a lot of magazines. Oh, wow. And books. Um, and really? books. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was successful, mm-hmm. but I, I had the flying bug. And during that time, I was getting my commercial and instrument because ah. I finally had money. <laughs> was the log business paying for your passion then, basically? It was. Getting the license and all yes. that? Yes, although we still struggled, but we made enough yes. so that I could do that. And uh, But I always wanted to be a game warden in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, so finally, the opportunity came for me to become a aide and that was basically uh, the way you got on to be a game warden. You had to start out as an aide. And they call them aides now, but in those days we were called Fish and Wildlife Enforcement Officers. Mm-hmm. We went to a two-week school. Then we wore a badge and a gun and did all the things and that a normal game warden did. Wow. 
they you don't do that anymore. That. They <laughs> sign me up. That's yeah, a good deal. Yeah, yeah, that's a good deal. But uh, yeah, so that was 1988, I think. Okay. When I started. Yeah. 1988. And uh, then it took me. It was. Uh, they they went for like nine years without hiring any game wardens oh. or troopers. After wow. the pipeline ended, they had so many troopers hmm. uh, because they had hired so much for that influx of people. Yes. Of people. And then the, they they outfluxed basically. And then they outfluxed. Yes. So uh, it was like nine years before they offered uh, trooper positions. Yes. So finally, uh, I got to go to the academy, and uh, I was in the academy and had three kids <laughs> mm-hmm. but she put up with it uh, yeah it was what was that like Lynette when he was in the academy it was pretty hard we moved from Kodiak my parents were living in Big Lake my sister oh. both sisters so I stayed with one of my sisters and you know having to stay with someone else is tough but and it yes. was three months but and it was a blessing stayed. and three kids yeah. yeah but they had room for us and, and we made it work and mm-hmm. Oh, what How a, long was that time? Three months. Th- okay, three months, yeah. Yeah. Mm. But. Mm-hmm. And she said, you can move us anywhere in the state, but not Cody. Yeah, I had a guy come to the house to interview <laughs> me, and I said, well, he says, is there any place you like or don't want? And I said, yeah, any place but Kodiak. That was our first post was <laughs> That's Kodiak. That's so interesting. I hear a lot of people wanting to get into Kodiak, and you were itching to get out. I grew up in Anchor Point, and I heard the horror stories of people coming back on the ferry of how rough it was, how they thought they were going to die, throwing up the whole way, Ugh. cars sliding around. Wow. And I never wanted to go there. And I'd heard about the grizzly bears when I was oh, a little girl. Oh, she was scared to death. My dad bears. would say, <laughs> you don't have to be scared of these bears. It was in Chugiak. Mm. And he says, because in Kodiak, they're so tall they could look in our second story window. <laughs> so I grew up with a fear of Kodiak bears. <laughs> and so that I did not want to go to Kodiak. Yeah. And we got it. So I had a 44 and mm-hmm. I carried it around with me. I took the boys out and... We went all around, and I had no fear of the bears, mm. but I did get a fear of the men that would be in their car, you know, loaded up cars <laughs> of board men driving around back roads. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm not scared of the bears, but I am scared of these guys, so I, I quit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't do that mm-hmm. much anymore. But. Mm-hmm. So Kodiak was one of our favorite places. It yes. was beautiful. Oh, I, hear, I, I actually have not been there, but I have an invitation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you should I, go. I, yes, I hear it's just gorgeous there. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your career in with uh, fishing game. What what was your job and what was it like? So I was a game warden, uh, and as an aide, I had spent some time. I didn't tell you that, but I had spent some time in Kodiak for like eight months. There was a position that opened uh, for a fish and wildlife enforcement officer okay. on one of the boats. Mm. Well, I grew up when I was younger in Homer. Um, I worked on a beach site, hmm. and uh, I was a herring saner. I was a skip man for herring boat. Huh. And that also started, or fed the love for flying. Hmm. I always wanted to be a herring spotter. Yeah. So I got to fly with our pilot lot. Hmm. Um, but over on the beach site, that's where I started really getting to fly yeah, um, and learning. 
mm-hmm. actually getting in the control. You were telling me before we hit record that you learned to fly off of beach. Yes, it was all beaches over there. And you was all off airport, all, all of your learning. All off airport. I was probably flown for two years before I ever got to land on a real runway. <laughs> <laughs> My first off airport landing, I was a nervous wreck because I'd never done it before. Right. Because everything was airports and all my training. Mm-hmm. But you had it totally I flipped. had it totally different. <laughs> and, and, and actually, it's really, I don't know if you've noticed this, but, you know, you, you can pinpoint on a small runway. You can be so accurate. But when you're coming into one of these great big runways that's 150 feet wide. Yes. Sometimes it's hard to figure out where you're going to touch down because you can't focus on everything. It's so big. There's no points of reference, right? right. It's just big, huge, open, whatever. Yeah. So uh, it was that part was actually difficult. Yes. Uh, you can lose your depth perception as well mm-hmm. easily. Easily. Because there's no references. No yeah. references. It's so wide and cleared out. And, uh, so you got things honed in pretty quick that way. So we got things honed in pretty quick. And, uh, yeah, so I became the Kodiak 185 driver. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so a lot of floats, a lot of wheels. Yeah. And we did both the Peninsula and Kodiak Island. Hmm. So I got lots of experience um, and started actually training in the Grumman Goose. Oh, no uh, kidding. To go down to Cole Bay. Wow. Um, and that kind of got shut down we had uh, one of our uh, uh, commissioners Swackhammer uh, also loved to fly the Grumman Goose mm. but uh, they had a accident and it mm. killed both of them oh wow uh, through White Pass leaving mm. Juno coming back to Anchorage yeah mm. and <clears throat> so at that time they they actually got rid of all the Grumman geese. We had three. Hmm. And uh, that ended that program, and they went to uh, caravans. Yeah. And asked me if I wanted to fly a caravan, and I had no no desire to be a taxi driver. Mm-hmm. So we went to Kotzebue. Hmm. There was a job opening with... Uh, with the troopers. Yes. Yep. So there, okay. you get seniority, and then you can bid on them. Yes. And... Uh, we all wanted to be in the bush. And Lynette was very excited to move again. Oh, I was. She was. I loved moving. Could not wait to go. Why did you love moving so much? I Most have no people idea. don't say that. I have I loved starting all over with a clean place, fresh, something different. Yes. Meeting, like you I are, love meeting new people. Because right now we're in Trapper Creek mm-hmm. and you guys are literally building your home right now. And we'll mm-hmm. get to that. But <laughs> and you're loving this right oh, now. Oh yes. Oh absolutely. <laughs> yes. But yes. I loved every place we went. Every single place that we went, we planned a lodge. We're going to stay here. We're going to build a lodge. And we're <laughs> going to have this wonderful life. And then we'd move. And I'd start all over again. <laughs> but I would live it in such detail. It was as if everything, I've lived all of those lives mm. to the mm. fullest. Interesting. Yeah. So tell me about your time in Kotzebue, uh, flying with a, as a trooper. Yep. Uh, so we talked about it a little bit. Uh, I only had quite a bit of time in a Cessna 185. Mm-hmm. And that job came with a Super Cub also. Mm. So I had to learn how to fly a Super Cub. 
and made several mistakes. One of those mistakes was trying to do a touch and go on a one-way strip. Oh yes, and yes, a, yes. You told a one-way strip. Yeah. For those who don't know, is you can only land and take off in one direction. It yeah. is not possible for a go-around. Mm-hmm. Period. Once you're on short final, you're committed. So there was this one strip I had looked at, and I was learning the Super Cub. I had landed there in the 185 with no problem, but I wasn't quite as good with that Super Cub, which sounds (laughs) crazy uh, because the 185 is much faster, much bigger. Yes, but, but you just being, you got it down so well, yep. and then you changed planes. And then and, I changed planes. Yes. So I decided, well, this this thing gets on and off so short, I can just roll my wheels on this just to test it out. Mm-hmm. Well, once my wheels touched down, it was evident that I was not going to be able to stop. And the only option was not to say, whoa, in a tight spot. So I hit the power, flew right to the bluff that I was going to hit, and veered ever so gently out at the stall until I got pointed at another hill that wasn't quite as steep. Mm. And I was sure that was where I was going to crash. So I was going to fly the airplane to the scene of the accident, and I flew it all the way over there, and we were still flying Mm. and still gaining altitude a little bit. And uh, there was a little gully or wash. Uh, There was no water in the creek, but Mm. I was able to follow that up, and it opened up high enough, and I got enough altitude, and I made it out of there. And uh, so that was one of the real learning points in my career. Hmm. Uh, And you and I were talking about it uh, earlier, how you have to make a decision and commit. And it sounds like that's what you did. If you had dilly-dallied in that situation, I would have wrecked the airplane and probably hurt myself badly because it it was a straight bluff wall, yeah, solid rock. So you could have cut power and slowed down as much as you can and run into the bluff. And run into the bluff. Or you could have hit power and you had to make that choice (laughs) in a split second. In a split second. Yes. Yep. Hmm. Hmm. But you were decisive, and it paid off that time. Well, it paid off that time. I'm sure the angels were doing all they could to keep that airplane in the air. (laughs) You Uh, gave them a good hearty workout. I did, (laughs) and I've kept them working hard all these years. (laughs) Through all these years, we didn't have cell phones. Always, yes. And we've always lived out away from other communities. And there were many, many times I prepared for his death Hmm. because he wasn't home when he should be. Yeah, they gave my airplane away several times. <laughs> <laughs> we tried to be positive. I never wanted it to be one of those emotional wives whose husband dies. I was going to be the strong one, so we'd, I'd prepare the boys. We're going to be okay. We'll get rid of this stuff, and we'll just go somewhere else. You're already making plans. We're ready. When the we call didn't this. come or mm-hmm. whatever. But I, there have been times other people have assumed he was dead, was and there... they would call me and say, we don't know where he is, but we just... Was there a lot him. of anxiety for you, um... At those moments only. Just in the moments. Only the moments when he was not, he was three, I would start three to six hours if he's late and I would assume and prepare. It wasn't I assumed. I just prepared because I didn't want to be caught unaware. Yeah. 
But I've had troopers come to the door and sit on their knees and say, okay, we think he's alive, but we want to prepare you. (laughs) And I just look at them and go, oh, guys, he's only three hours late. This is nothing. (laughs) It's okay. You guys are amateurs. (laughs) You just don't know Kurt Beddingfield. (laughs) It could be three days. Yeah, what we didn't have sat phones in those days. And Kurt, what were some of the reasons there was these three, six-hour longer delays? Uh, it was always weather. Weather, okay. Always weather. So out of cold foot especially, a uh, few times in Kotzebue, but uh, because you had to fly over the what we call the fence, the Brooks mm. Range, and you're on the other side, Yeah. Um, it would fog in and shut down, and there was no way through. Hmm. And no communication. Yeah. Uh, so you would land where you could and wait until you could fly. And so oftentimes you were just landed somewhere on a sandbar or something. And sandbar or the side of And you just had to wait for the fog or, to clear. Mm-hmm. And you never knew how long that would be. You didn't know how long it would be. Wow, did you ever have to, like, camp and sleep out there? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, many times. The worst one I remember was uh, at smoke year. You had, uh, I can't remember <clears throat> what date it was, but anyway, I had uh, been out patrolling and it had gone clear over to the east, uh, over by Fort Yukon. And uh, that's how big my area was from Coldfoot. I know, I'm thinking about Kotzebue and mm-hmm. uh, Fort Yukon. That's like. Uh, it, so this was out of Coldfoot. Oh, Coldfoot. Okay, yeah. okay, gotcha. So the dividing line between Kotzebue and Coldfoot was basically the headwaters of the no attack. Okay. Um, that's where our dividing line was. But I had Point Hope mm. all the way over to the Canadian border on the north side, uh. all the way down to Fort Yukon, wow. and then from Fort Yukon, pretty much a straight line back to Coldfoot. And that was your area That was my patrol. area of patrol. <laughs> so I had been on patrol, and the smoke came in, uh, yeah. and it was... Uh, smoke is... For me, far worse than fog. Hmm. How so? Uh, because on the ground you can look up and see, and you think it's perfect. Yes. And you take off, and poof. You think you can get above it, you mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, it looks like you can, you can see. Because you can see blue. You can see blue, you can see, but once you're in it, you can see nothing. Yes, I've experienced that before. It's, yes. And, uh, in fact, I thought I could make it home because I knew right where I was. I could mm. see below me. Yeah. I could see on the GPS mm-hmm. exactly where I was. And so I had to go through this narrow little pass. And so I did, following the GPS, and made a complete 360 and <laughs> came back to where I started from. And Even with I, GPS. <laughs> I should have hit any of those walls. <laughs> wow. Those mountains. I should yeah. have hit any of them. Yeah. But somehow, God brought me through, and I said, that's it. <coughs> We're landing. Hmm. So uh, I, I knew of a strip right close by. Okay. So I spent three days there waiting for the smoke. And, and of no course, way she to had contact no way them. of knowing. Hmm. Wow. Wow. And that's one of the, the troopers show up and say, we think he's alive. <laughs> that's one of, <laughs> one of them. Yes. Have wow. you heard from your husband? <laughs> we cannot get a hold of him. Hmm. 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 But then there was the year 
we were living in Coldfoot, and we would sit in our rockers every morning. We'd get up early and we'd dream and dream and dream. And at 8 o'clock, he'd go, I've got to go. And I'd say, I know, I just can't stand it. I can't wait for you to retire. He was so close to retiring. Hmm. And I said, I just, I'm just ready to live my life with you. <laughs> <laughs> All up to now, it's just been kind of surviving. And hmm. I said, I'm just ready to start living some of our dreams. And there was... Up in Coldfoot, every summer it gets really, really hot. And on those hot days, you get thunderstorms, lightning, major lightning. Hmm. And it sounded like one had hit our house. And our youngest son ran outside just knowing the house had been hit. Well, unbeknownst to us, it had hit a tower. Curtis had landed. We didn't know it. And he was in full uniform. And he was walking up, and there was a side splash of lightning, and it hit him. Hmm. knocked him out he was unconscious we didn't know that and he comes staggering in and he says i think i was hit by lightning and the smell (laughs) of burnt hair was so strong we went you were (laughs) and that was all it was like oh i'm okay and we said okay cool that was exciting and um his voice started shaking Hmm. and i don't know how many months went by but it got to where he would answer the phone and he would sound mean Hmm. to people and I'd go honey that was the good guy he was calling to help you and give you it why did you sound so mean he said I was trying to tighten my throat so my voice wouldn't shake well they came across mean and we didn't know we didn't know what was going on other Hmm. than he started shaking more Hmm. and he went down he called me one day he was gone in Fairbanks and he called me and he said something's wrong and I don't know what's wrong I was teaching a class and my voice shut down wow he said i couldn't talk i had to leave and he said Mm. i drove myself to the hospital he said they're going to do an mri on me Mm. and we found out that lightning strike it damaged the nerve endings Mm. and he ended up where he could barely if any adrenaline happened he couldn't talk Mm. he his hands shook so bad and he looked scared and Mm. His sergeant called me one time, and I said, man, we've got a problem. I don't know what to do. And he said, I just got, he said, that's why I'm calling you. He said, Mm. I just got a call from a good friend of mine, and Kurt checked him out in the field. And the guy went back and said, is Kurt a new pilot or a new trooper? And the guy said, no, he's one of our best troopers, and he's, he's, you know, nearly ready to retire. And he said, well, he was shaking so bad, it was like he was really nervous. Mm. So we knew then we had to change. Wow. That was the beginning wow. of the end of him being a trooper. Because hmm. he hmm. didn't want to be a scared trooper. Yeah. He wasn't, but he looked suddenly. He just looked that way. He suddenly, the shape, and you shooting with a gun. You didn't want to yeah. <laughs> look like you're carrying a gun and you probably. <laughs> the, the public might appreciate They might not appreciate not seeing that. Gunner, yes. So um, luckily, they were all friends. They were all Christian guys, actually, hmm. that got together and said, you need to retire now. Hmm. <laughs> and so that was... Was that then kind of an er- like a little bit early for yeah, retirement? Yeah, it was several years early. We, okay. we, we had actually just bought land up in Wiseman for retirement. We were going to be building on because oh. um, we were in state housing. Hmm. So yeah. that kind of ended the career. Mm-hmm. And, and Kurt, was that kind of like a devastating thing for you? Uh, it was. <laughs> it was extremely devastating. Wow. In fact, it took probably a year and a half before I got over it. Wow. And we didn't know how much was lightning related. 
Yeah. Because he did change for a mm. while. It was, mm. it was a lot of different stuff that we had to go that through. That was just a difficult time, mm-hmm. and it started with a lightning strike. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, we didn't, we didn't connect it to a lightning strike until they didn't find anything in the MRI except my two vertebrae that they <laughs> called about and said, you need to come <laughs> in and have surgery on your neck. <laughs> You've got two broken vertebrae. In your and by then he was getting feeling but, back in his arm, and he was like, uh, I'm good. It had been a year and a half since it had happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, hmm. That's when I hit my head in the turbulence. I split it open. Yes, could you tell that story briefly? Sure. That turbulence story we, you told me earlier. Yeah. So we were in Coldfoot, and I was. Uh, it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I got a call said, uh, bring your airplane in. Um, it's due for a hundred hour and you can pick this other airplane up. It's ready to go. So I said, sure. And I grabbed the candy bar and jumped in, didn't even cinch down. There was no wind on the ground. Yeah. And, uh, took off and I was climbing up out of cold foot going direct, direct. Weather was pretty nice. And the next thing I knew, I got slammed, the airplane was in a stall, I hit my head, and I was losing consciousness. The gray just sucked right in, and I did, It's like still that when don't, you stand up too fast, and it, it kind of, yep, it, it felt kind of like that. Felt like mm-hmm. that. I don't know if I actually passed out, or how long it took, but I knew I was falling. Mm. And uh, the airplane was still stalled. Mm. And I finally woke up enough to push forward on the stick mm. and give it full power. We we made it out of that. Mm. But uh, yeah, that was interesting. Um, no wind, uh, no forecast mm. for turbulence like yeah. that. And I have flown all over the state. Kodiak Peninsula. The peninsula is renowned for its turbulence. Mm. I've never experienced turbulence Nothing like that like before. That. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. 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 So tell me about, now you're kind of in a forced retirement because of the all those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you guys do next? Well, so there was a guy named Ralph Miller. Mm-hmm. Uh, he owned Deltana Outfitters, and uh, he was looking for a pilot, and he heard that I was retiring and he wanted me to come fly for him and I said Ralph of course I couldn't talk very well at that time my voice shook so bad Mm. and uh, so basically I conveyed to him I said you don't want me I can't even talk Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. he said can you still fly and I said I think so so we tested it out, and sure enough, I could still fly just fine. Hmm. Just couldn't talk on the radio. So <laughs> he would, for that first two years, he flew in the back. He talked to the tower Wow. when we had to go through Fairbanks. Hmm. And wow. I flew the airplane. <laughs> yeah. Was he a pilot also? He was a pilot also. Okay. okay. But uh, just when he, he, he had those no ATC experience flights in off-airport. Oh, I see. And he had... He had waited until he was like 55 before mm. he got his pilot's license. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he was just not comfortable flying off airport. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. But he could talk on the radio. But he could talk on the radio. <laughs> a good pairing there. Yes. yes. So that's how we got by <laughs> with that. <laughs> and uh, so, of course, many, many people prayed for me. Mm. And uh, and we worked on it. And I got my voice under control. Wow. So by the time we had to start using a 135 certificate, which was four years after I had been, mm-hmm. um, I had it pretty well under control. Wow. And so I took my 135 check ride and passed it. And so I've been a 135 operator since then. Wow. And uh, we don't know how long that'll get to continue, <laughs> but... Uh, long as God wills. And so what is your 135 certificate? Like, what, what are you doing with that? Uh, commercially, we mostly do, uh, when I first got it, I would do uh, all kinds of flights. Hmm. Um, but now, pretty much all we do is haul hunters. Yes. And drop them off. Mm-hmm. 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 Which is the thing I did with you this past year. It is, exactly. Yeah. So you get to see firsthand what we do. <laughs> I did. It was it was pretty great. It was pretty great. And it was really, um, I really appreciate flying with you because we've landed in places I had never been to. Mm-hmm. And I had landed in um, similar challenging places like that, but this was all new. And you guys did a great job kind of guiding me in gently. Good. <laughs> so Good. I learned a lot from that, and I appreciate it. Great. And I'm, I'm doing my... Um, when I'm doing my cruise settings, I'm doing them a little bit different the way you mm-hmm. kind of described it to me. It's been great. I'm flying so much faster. <laughs> yes. Flying over squared. Yes. Yes. Because yeah. in my none of my training taught me to fly over squared like that. Yes. Well, but, even when I was learning, you know, everything was done by the square. Yes. So you flew 24 squared or 25 squared or right. 23 squared. Everything was by those numbers, but mm. it turns out flying over squared, yeah, which is a high manifold pressure yes. and a low RPM, right? Uh, which I was always told as a big no-no. Is a big no-no. Yeah. But as you have discovered, and as the engine manufacturers will tell you, if you're running anywhere in the green, you're fine, yeah. and you're not hurting your engine. Yes. And in fact, you're increasing the life of your engine because mm. of, of running a, a low RPM mm-hmm. and yep. a high manifold pressure. Yes. Plugs stay cleaner. Everything runs better. Yes. You go faster. Mm-hmm. Burn less fuel. Mm-hmm. So I was surprised at how much it would trim back. Yes. It's a win-win situation. Yes. The only downside is my plane is carbureted and I got bad distribution. Yes. Well, and <laughs> but we that, is, to live with it. that is bad on carbure- carbureted engines, but it works on carbureted engines. It does work. You just have to uh, learn that engine. Yes. You certainly don't want to be running lean on one cylinder. Yes. Uh, engine monitors really help with that. They do. Yes. Very now, good. you, uh, your son Isaac is sitting next to you here, and he... Mm-hmm. Um, mentioned a carb ice story that you had. <laughs> Can you tell your carb ice story? Yes, I will. It would be helpful. So what I learned the hard way 
nobody ever told me that you can choke your engine out with too much air. Mm -hmm. It should have dawned on me that this would happen. But uh, anyway, I took off on a beautiful May day from Coldfoot, mm -hmm. flew over to the other side. And uh, so along the Dalton Highway, there's a corridor, and you can't hunt with a rifle within five miles. But you can trap, hmm. nor can you use a snow machine to cross hmm. that, but you can trap with hmm. a snow machine. <laughs> so anyway, I see a snow machine going off, and I follow it off the corridor. And I come and upon. And you're a, you're a warden at this I'm time. I'm a game and warden so you're, still. You're doing yep. your job. And I'm yep. in the Super Cub. Mm -hmm. And at altitude, it is zero. Mm. At a thousand feet, it's zero degrees. Mm -hmm. Beautiful yes. May Day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I fly over this tent, and there's a caribou there. Well, you can't kill a caribou. With a rifle or a snow machine. Yes. So. Like a dead caribou is there. A dead caribou oh, laying gotcha. next to their tent. Okay. I should say what looked like a dead caribou. Okay. Unbeknownst to me, there are wolves modeled exactly the same as caribou. Mm. And as big as caribou. <laughs> what? Wolves? Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I was going to check this camp. Okay. So they're down in the creek bottom, so I was going to land right up on top above their camp and walk down. So I made several passes, and I'm on short final, and I pull back on the power, and I should have known something was up when, even though I'm dressed in my snowsuit and my warm clothes, it is now cold. I mean, really cold. Hmm. About that time, the engine quit. Hmm. And I'm on short final, and now I've dropped below the bluff. I'm not going to make it onto the bluff. I don't have time to start the airplane. I dump my flaps hmm. and immediately fell out of the sky into the snow. Hmm. Full left rudder and made this turn, and my wing went right up against the bluff through the snow. <laughs> but did not hit the bluff. Didn't put a scratch on the airplane. You're stressing me out just listening to this. <laughs> yes. Didn't put a scratch on the airplane, except now I'm sitting in six feet of powder. <laughs> and well, I got to ask, um, did you pull your carb heat? Was that in when you were coming in? The Because well, <laughs> it was a clear day. Yeah. I'd done what I always do. Mm -hmm. Pulled out my carb heat. Mm-hmm. Made sure I didn't have carb ice and yeah. pushed it back in. Had I hmm. left my carb heat out the whole time, mm -hmm. that would have never happened. Do you do you always pull your carb heat out now on days like that? I do. Okay. And in fact, I learned from flying in that cold weather, when it's 25 or colder, below zero, mm -hmm. when you hit the power with a carbureted engine... And you have carb heat, you better have it out. Really? Or it's likely to quit. Really? So you start with your carb heat on. Hmm. Go to full power. 
And then once you're at full power, you can push in your carb heat. Interesting. That's even for takeoff. Yeah. But it's especially important when you're landing in those cold temperatures. Interesting. Leave that carb heat on hmm. hot. Because it's just the opposite of what you think. It's not carb ice. Hmm. It's too much air. So your fuel-air mixture is so far out of line yeah. in those cold temperatures. And in fact, when I landed, it was 51 below zero wow. on the ground. And that zero air is just so thick at a thousand it's cold. Feet. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But That's just in a thousand feet, it dropped 50 degrees, 51 degrees. Hmm. So. Yes. Anyway. Uh, I'm glad I can learn that no. lesson from um, your mistake rather than mine. Not, it wasn't yes. even a mistake. You just followed your training, right? I just followed my training, yeah. uh, but I should have known, um, yeah. you know, had I thought about it. But I yes. was you did, you young. You did what you always did. Did what yeah. I always did. Yeah, interesting. But uh, So how did you get out of six feet of snow? So I, uh, of course, got out of the airplane, got my snowshoes on. And realized right away what I had done because there was no carb ice. It started right back up. Uh, yes. And uh, so about that time, the snow machiners show up because they saw me and they heard me. Yeah. Well, it turns out they were guys I knew. One was a fishing game biologist. Mm. And uh, the caribou that I thought was a caribou was actually a wolf Wow! that they had trapped. Wow. And it probably weighed 160. Wow. It was huge. I didn't know and they it were that And it was modeled big. brown and white, just wow. like a caribou. Wow. Not black and white, not gray, yeah. brown. Huh. And they said there's a whole pack of them. And later, years later, I saw a pack. Hmm. And they just stay out on the flats and they hunt caribou. Wow. And they have And they just adopted the caribou in, color. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So. But anyway, they packed. They packed the runway and I got out my snowshoes and packed over to them in front of my airplane. Yeah. And was able to get They use the snow machines to pack out. Of, of yep. They yeah. made me a runway down there. That was a relief to see them. Oh, huh? it was. Because wow. I would have been there certainly... Probably all day. Well, you imagine packing that, you know, trying to tromp through there. and Yes. Mm. Oh, it would have been horrible. Yes. Horrible. Yes. yes. Hmm. So tell me about um, what are you guys up to today? I know that you had a place over on a private airstrip before, mm -hmm. and now you've um, sold that place and you're building here. Tell me about <laughs> what's going on now. Yes. So when we came... To Willow, we bought just outside of Willow at Rustic Wilderness, mm -hmm. and uh, we loved the hangar. But from day one, Lynette <laughs> wanted a hangar, mm -hmm. uh, and with she a trailer with a trailer in it. You know, I've heard you say that before. That's funny, interesting. And I got it. And now you got it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so we had this opportunity. Uh, my son Isaac and his wife bought uh, this homestead. Her family homestead. Uh, her family mm -hmm. homestead. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had the opportunity to come up here. So we sold the hangar. We prayed about it. And uh, 
So now we're here building another one <laughs> and uh, still flying together, Isaac and I. And uh, and this just seems like a dream to me. You kinda, you've kind of you got this pretty large piece of property here. You're close to your son mm-hmm. and helping him with his business, flying still. Yeah. And you guys just have a handful of projects. You've got your hangar. You've got this beautiful property. Looking off the end of the airstrip here, you can see Denali. Mm-hmm. Just stunning views. Yeah, um, no, it's wonderful. You guys are very, very blessed. And we you are. got your hangar with a mm-hmm. trailer inside. With my great big windows, so all six rockers will sit in front of it, and we can all just sit and drink coffee and watch like, the birds. Like we are right now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Minus the coffee, because I finished mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but if I don't hurry up and stoke that fire, we're going to get cold. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, guys, this was a real pleasure. You have been a good, good example to me in your faithfulness, 43 or, or 44 years, something <laughs> yeah, like how, that. However you look at it. Um, yeah. And now my friendship with your son has been just so sweet. And flying with you guys, that time out at um, what Stony River Lodge with mm-hmm. you was just yes. precious. And I, uh, Isaac and I were talking about details. We're trying to do it again with good. you because it was just wonderful. Yeah, so, we sure enjoyed having you. Yeah. You saved us lots of work. <laughs> no, good. Good. I'm glad. Well, it was a great experience, and I hope we work it out to do it again. So thank great. you guys for the time, telling thank your you. story, being a bit vulnerable. Really appreciate yep. it. You bet. Mm-hmm.